My name is Tucker Johnson, and I am your host today as we experience NIMSI Live, where we talk about the latest and greatest in translation, localization, internationalization, culturalization, and all that fun stuff global companies need to delight their international customers or at least not piss them off too much. (laughs) On this program, we invite guests who like to have fun and have some value to add for our audience of globalization professionals. I'm always eager to provide a platform to those with a good story or a good data set. So let us know if there are any topics you'd like covered or guests we should reach out to for future episodes. If you haven't already done so, make sure that you are subscribed to Nimsy Insights or following us on LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Heck, we even have a Threads account for now. So go follow Nimsy Insights and you're going to be one of the first people to know when we schedule new events like this or when we publish new industry research available at Nimsy.com. A quick introduction to the platform. Most of the folks are joining us live on LinkedIn today. A lot of you guys may be listening to the recording, either archived on our YouTube channel or via your podcast platform of choice. We take all these episodes and turn them into a podcast. Welcome to all of you. If you are joining us live, you can interact with us in the chat. I'm not sure if my chats are working today to bring them up on screen, but I will be monitoring those. So if you have any questions, comments, or criticisms, just drop them into the chat and we will do our best to address those during the episode. So without further ado, uh, welcome once again to today's episode where we dive into the fascinating world of culturalization, localization, and gaming with a true industry veteran. Our guest, Kate Edwards, boasts an award-winning 30-year career in the game industry, and her influence reaches far and wide. As a CEO and principal consultant of Geography and co-founder of Set Jetters, Kate has innovated the field of content culturalization and has led the way in gaming localization. A former executive director of the International Game Developers Association, or IGDA, and Global Game Jam, her insights have shaped the industry in profound ways. She was f- recently featured on the cover of Multilingual Magazine, which I, of course, have a copy of right here, the July issue. And for those of you that want to learn more about her journey Either during or after our conversation today, flip on over to page 19 of the July issue, and there is a lovely profile there talking more about her experience and her career in the industry. Today's conversation, we're going to expand upon this profile published in Multilingual, exploring the effects of social media on culturalization, the unique challenges and opportunities in gaming localization, and the vital role of cultural understanding in our increasingly interconnected world. With her recent inclusion in Forbes 50 over 50 vision list, although, I'm sorry, Kate, you don't look over 50, but <laughs> Thank good, you. good on you. Um, and induction into the Women <laughs> Women in Games Hall of Fame, Kate's perspectives promise to enlighten and challenge us all. Welcome to the show, Kate. Thank you so much for joining us. I, I can't believe I've gone, what is it, 89 episodes without having you on. You're such a, <laughs> you're an industry name. Well, thank you. I, I appreciate that. It's an honor to be here. It really yeah. is. Well, t- tell us a little about yourself. I tried to hit the, the key points in the introduction there, but I'm before we jump into, I, I want to talk a lot about following up on stuff from your, your profile in Multilingual, because I found some interesting things in there that I'd like to pick your brain on. But before we get into that, I'd like you to explain to me and to the audience just a little bit about your career, just because, I mean, just from start to finish and it, it, just because it's been such a fascinating journey. And it's like, how does someone become a 
well, first of all, what, what the heck is a geographer? And <laughs> how does someone become that amongst all of the other things that you are? Yeah, well, it, it, it is a weird career path. I mean, to be honest with folks, my, I, my original aspiration was to be an astronaut. I really <laughs> wanted to be an astronaut because I was four years old when uh, we landed on the moon in 1969. So you can do the math how old I, how old I am. But I, that was really inspiring to me. And so my first major out of college was aerospace engineering to be an astronaut. But calculus just killed me. I'm, I'm way too right-brained. Um, and have more of an artistic side to me. So I actually changed and said, you know what? I really want to be a conceptual artist from Lucasfilm because I want to work on a Star Wars movie really bad because I'm obviously a Star Wars geek. Uh, and, obviously, yes. And, um, and so I pursued that for a couple of years that really improved my skills and I kind of got my conceptual design skills really high up there. And But then I already planned a minor in geography during that time because I just always had an interest in travel and culture and maps and everything else and um, my parents were school teachers so every summer we had the summer open so we were usually on a road trip somewhere in the U.S. or Canada or Mexico so that really I think influenced my interest in kind of ex exploration and meeting new people in different cultures um, and so I one time, you know, a couple of years into the industrial design field, I just said, you know what, why, if I'm so interested in geography enough to minor in it, why not just major in it and just, you know, just pursue it. So I did. And, um, you know, and I could take those, the artistic design skills with me over to cartography. And so that was really helpful. And, um, and so that's what I did. I, I changed my major one day and just the rest was history. I got straight A's for two years in my classes, which had never, ever happened to me before academically. Yeah, because you were taking calculus. That's why. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> so so I kind of felt like I found my calling. You know, I found the field that really resonated with me. And that was kind of how I got into geography, you know, the study of the earth. And what I, I mean, one of the reasons I love geography is because it is such a broad field. I mean, Within geography, I've studied population statistics and cultures and cross-cultural communication, as well as landforms, physical geography, plate tectonics, you know, all of these different things all fit under that umbrella of geography. And so um, for someone like myself with so many very broad interests, um, I think it was a good field to pursue. Yeah, it's super interesting and because most people don't think that there's a profession out there that's just basically <laughs> map geek, right? Well, yeah. I mean, so much more than that, because I, I'm fascinated by like the geopolitical ramifications of maps. I, just thinking about all of the other, you know, the plate tectonics and stuff. Just thinking mm -hmm. about maps, right? Talk, talk to us a little bit, because I have some experience, but I think it's fascinating for people to hear about, like how can maps get people into trouble in in the yeah. world of localization and culturalization. Well, it, it, that's a great, great angle because um, that is actually what got me a job at Microsoft was my okay. knowledge of boundaries and place names and, and islands and everything. Because part of part of the knowledge base that I have to maintain up here is basically every disputed object on the earth. Um, so every boundary segment, territory, island, name, you, you know, whatever else. And so that's part of the knowledge I use not only in the game side of my work, but also in the non-game side 
um, which is focused on cartographic and geopolitical consultation. And so maps, you know, as I think most people hopefully realize by now that any map that you ever see is not necessarily objective. It is a subjective process of taking real world data and then processing it down to and, and generalizing it and distilling it down to a particular image that serves a very specific purpose. Um, so for most people who are familiar with maps like Google Maps or Apple Maps on their phone, you know, that is designed for one purpose primarily, which is navigation. It's optimized to get you from A to B and help you find places that you want to get to quickly, you know, whether your car or walking or whatever. Um, and so there's, but even within Google Maps, for example, if you zoom out to the country level where you can see the boundaries of the different countries, um, those boundaries are not the same. Uh, depending on which domain you happen to be looking at Google Maps from. That, and that was one of the tasks I helped Google do when I consulted for them for six years is perfect what we call domain tailoring. So that when you go to different versions of Google Maps, like if you go to the version for China, you will not see the version of, of the boundaries um, that you will see in India, for example, because those two countries are diametrically opposed in terms of what they claim on the map. So like the Kashmir region, yeah. for example, in northern India, it, it looks completely different in the Indian version than it does in the Chinese version. And that's part of the requirement of having the maps available in those markets is that you have to comply with the different government viewpoints, what I like to call their geopolitical imagination, because they don't <laughs> actually control those areas, although they're trying. Um, but like even simple things like, you know, the Falkland Islands in Argentina are still called Islas Malvinas in Argentina, and you need to use that label in Argentina. You can't call them the Falkland Islands. And, and so this is this knowledge is what makes you incredibly valuable to a company like Microsoft. And when you start and when you started at Microsoft, were you working on games or did you no, you came I, in through games? All right. My my first job at Microsoft was working was making the maps for Encarta Encyclopedia way back in oh, 1992. Yeah. So for some people who uh, remember Encarta, some um, people who remember encyclopedias. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. Exactly. <laughs> Well, like I like to tell younger people when I talk to them, I said it was the last encyclopedia before Wikipedia, right. basically the last major one that was available that a lot of people had on their CD-ROM or DVD oh, yeah. that came with their computer. Um, so, yeah, I worked on that. I created the all the original maps for Encarta. They were all like static bitmap images. Um, and then that job evolved into helping in Carter World Atlas. And so I was basically a geographer within what was called the Geography Business Unit at Microsoft, wow. responsible for all the mapping products that they were working on. But then as I was doing that work, I started getting questions from around the company with people asking me all kinds of random stuff like, is this flag okay? Is this gesture mean anything? I'm like, yes, it does. Don't use it. Um, you know, in certain places anyway. Um, and even that, what I just did is a gesture in Greece. Don't use that in Greece. Um, but um, so I got a lot of questions, what I, which I was able to answer. And so that kind of evolved my my job into a broader, um, what we call Dr. Ware inside of Microsoft. That was actually my role was Dr. Ware, in addition to doing the work on the mapping products. Um, and so that was a interesting to find that there, that there was a hunger for that kind of knowledge within the company because a lot of people just didn't know what to do, you know, and, and part of that's reflected honestly in the fact that geography education in the US and frankly in most of the world is not that great. Well, no comment on that. <laughs> <laughs> no comment on that. Um, so the, the geography takes you naturally into the culture 
of it, right? So you started yes. out as a geographer, but you do a lot of work, and there's a lot of overlap, of course, right? But yeah. there's a lot of work that you do, which is uh, around culturalization. Talk to what, yes. what is culturalization? Can you define that term for us? Yeah, so for me, culturalization basically involves the adaptation of all the content of a product um, for another market or for another culture. And so to me, and I actually got into some arguments with some people over the years who are focused on localization, which to me is language translation primarily. Mm -hmm. um, that's the way I view localization. Well, I know to you, right? Like that, that's yeah. one of the things It's like, I, there's this very textbook answer about like, what's the difference between translation, yeah. localization, internationalization, what, yes. what are the other globalization? It's like these are there's textbooks that define these things, yes. but they are not the definitions that we use in our. I don't industry. think so, I mean, and I'm using a practical definition because anyone I know who works on the quote localization side of a product is almost always translation, translation. almost always. Exactly. Yeah, and I'm so that's that. why. Yes, that's why I make that distinction. So to me, culturalization is a broader view of not just the language that we're trying to also translate, but we need to translate the concepts, the images, the, you know, especially like on a game, it's all about world building. So I assist the game developers in building their worlds, whether it's based on the real world or fantasy world. And everything that's in that world has to be compatible with the local market worldviews. It's either going to be compatible or incompatible. And usually for any world that gets built, I mean, you know, 90% of what's in there is going to be fine. It's not going to be an issue, Yeah. but it's the little things. It's the little, like an object, an artifact, a flag, a gesture, whatever it might be. Um, it's those things that can, can tend to be a flashpoint that can actually cause bigger problems in any, any given market. Well, and particularly nowadays in the world of every everything being online and social media and people's ideas and opinions, good or bad, um, it can just travel so fast. And yes. that brings me to a quote. Well, oh, first of all, before I bring up the quotes, I want to encourage everybody, go follow Kate on LinkedIn, follow Geography, follow Set Jetters, um, do it now, open a new tab, just do it now before you forget, because it is worth the follow. But... All right, now now I'll bring this up. I pulled some quotes okay. from the multilingual article, and I just, these are kind of some of the things that stuck out to me. I'll read them for the for the sake of our podcast viewer or podcast listeners. I would say so on social media influence. Uh, you say now three decades later, I'm pleased to say that the cultural inclusivity argument isn't difficult at all to make, and far more people are open to it now than before. Although I still have to use the money argument at times. But we have new challenges today we didn't have in the 90s, such as social media. This technology has radically shifted the corporate accountability landscape. And I see that many companies are still struggling to cope with how to manage the discoverability of their faux pas and potential mistakes. To some degree, social media has actually meant a bit of a step backwards because some content creators are paralyzed with fear of doing an incorrect representation to the point that they choose quote-unquote safe approaches that I feel are ultimately a net loss of in inclusivity. A lot to unpack there. <laughs> yes. Oh, um, so first of all, this, this cult, talk, 
corporate accountability. I, I think yes. that that's a good term. So that's basically uh, I would interpret that as corporations kind of stepping up and you know taking accountability for the content that they put out there. Yes. But social media has created a very big hammer to to be used against corporations that don't do the right thing um, because activists can can mobilize relatively very quickly now mm-hmm. and cause cause a big fuss. Um, about it. How has this impacted the work that you do? Um, are you, are your services such as yours in higher demand nowadays or talk to to me about that? To be blunt. Yes. Um, it, it has changed things significantly for me. I mean, especially over the 30 years I've done this work, I would say in the last 10 years, it's become far more challenging because of, of social media because, you know, honestly, it's funny, I was actually reminiscing with some colleagues recently, we're saying, wasn't it cool in the good old days where we had a physical media like a CD-ROM, and it got physically shipped to a market, and then you couldn't be in the content wasn't <laughs> Along like with out- the bugs. Well, yeah, that too. <laughs> right. But, there was um, no day one patches back yeah, in the exactly. 90s. <laughs> But it was really about the key issue of discoverability. How to, if you did make a mistake or you made an incorrect representation or you did some kind of geopolitical faux pas, how noticeable will it really be? Um, not only just in general to the world, but also specific to that market. Because when you had it contained on physical media, the likelihood of it getting out there was so much less. Um, compared to today, where everything today, as I advise all the people I work with, it's like the moment, the very moment you release your content, it's everywhere. Yeah. It's literally everywhere. And it will be on the street and, and, you know, on a $1 DVD somewhere around the world, like literally overnight. And so you have to do it right. You have to get it right the first time because there is no do-over um, and there's no way to do kind of like a quiet re-release of a physical media or any of that stuff anymore. And so I think that, you know, but I honestly think that's ultimately a good thing because it forces more accountability in the content creation process. You have to be more mindful of what you're creating, why you're creating it. And it really comes down to this connection to the values that you have as a creator. And, you know, are you willing to stand by those values or not? You know, first of all, do you even have values and define them as a, as creators, you know, and I mean, as a company yeah. or as individuals, um, as individuals, yes, we, we all have certain levels of values, but then collectively, what do those values mean? Because so many times, even with some of my own clients, I see that they did this beautifully wordsmithed, you know, value statement on their website. We stand for inclusivity and diversity and et cetera, et cetera, which is great. It's fantastic to put that out there to the world. But then the content they're creating is not necessarily reflecting the values that they stated on their website. And there's therein lies the disconnect where you have this basically an opening for people out there on social media and elsewhere to hold the company accountable and say, wait a minute, you said you stand for inclusivity. Then why are all the characters in your game a bunch of white guys right. or whatever? You know, but without a good narrative reason, I should say. There's if there's nothing wrong with doing that as long as you can justify it narratively, it makes sense. It's you know, basically what I would say is logically consistent with the world you've created, then that's fine. But a lot of times we see decisions being made which don't really seem to have any kind of impact. So like if I'm working with a, a, uh, a team and they're developing like a bunch of characters for a game's narrative and I say, 
is it will it change the game significantly the narrative the gameplay the user experience any of that if this character is instead of being white and male is this character is another you know from another race or culture will it really change things and i mean 99 of the time the answer is no it really doesn't change anything mm -hmm. about the broader what the game is so to me it's like well why not you say you stand for inclusivity so why not step into that a bit more and, and actually show that you believe in it. And, you know, so getting getting into those conversations is pretty common in my line of work. So you can actually, nowadays, you're saying it's, it's a lot easier to have those conversations on a principled basis yes. rather than resor resorting to what you call the money argument. Which yeah, is, and if you piss off these foreign markets, you're not going to make as much money. <laughs> Well, it, well, and to, to clarify on the money argument, what, what I meant by that is that in the early days, like back in the 90s, when I had to justify the work that I was doing, oftentimes when I would tell people that my, my reason for doing this work is essentially to respect the local customer and who they are, um, what the culture that they are from, and basically show them that we care about who they are by, by making sure our content doesn't contain things that is problematic for them. Um, but that argument back in the early days of my work really didn't fly very far. Um, so basically what I had to say well, instead... Up until they had to sign a purchase order. Well, right? yeah, exactly. So people are probably conceptually <laughs> on board with that. But then yeah. they get your quote and they're like, oh, well, nice talking. Yeah, because yeah, exactly. I've had those conversations before too. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But but then it was, but then I had to learn how to pivot my language and say, well, wait a minute. If Basically, if you're doing what I'm asking you to do, which is you know do some culturalization on your content, it's actually going to maximize the reach of your content content to more cultures, which in turn means more revenue. So when I stated it that way, then the light bulbs went on and they're like, oh, well, yes, of course we want that. Of course we want to make more revenue. So I'm like, okay, well then do what I say, please. Well, well, it must have worked at least 258 times. <laughs> I, I was, you've worked on 200 over the, the course of three decades, you have worked on 258 different games. Well, to be honest, since that article was written, it's now 267. Oh, geez. <laughs> <laughs> the article was written a month ago. <laughs> I know it's been it's been busy. That's crazy. Uh, what are some of your favorite games that you've worked on, uh, as far as like the unique challenges involved with it? Well, I think you know, I, I one of the biggest challenges I think. I um, mean, there's so many games. I mean, I, I just it's just kind of delving into so many. Um, the game Jade Empire I worked on, uh, which was a Bioware game uh, many years ago, was really challenging because it was one of the first games that ever did a fantasy world based on Asian culture rather than a fantasy world, which is almost always based on European medieval culture. You know, could you think of Game of Thrones, Lord of the Rings, et cetera, yeah. et cetera. All of these are based on a more European style uh, medieval culture, whereas Jade Empire did something completely different. And um, it was a real challenge to do so because they wanted to have cultural influences from China, Korea, Japan, and South Asia all combined in a way that made sense, and, but without any one of those dominating the other. And where was the developer located? Were they uh, so, so Bioware located in Edmonton in Alberta. So it was a Canadian company yes. wanting to do an Asian-inspired... Yes. Okay, yeah. So, yeah, they need help. Yeah. Right. So... 
And, you know, I think in the end, they did a fantastic job and it was, but it was a, just a real challenge to work on because another th challenge we had is that we didn't want to, we wanted to be authentic to the language style. So, but we were like, well, we can't use Chinese, Korean or Japanese because we don't want any one of those languages to dominate the other. So we actually hired a linguist and created a language that we called Fofan. Um, and so it was basically a fictional language that was created specifically for the game. And so that was an additional challenge. Wow. Yes. Yeah. So that incorporated a lot of elements. <laughs> yes. Um, but, you know, as far as favorites, I mean, I loved working on the Halo franchise because I'm a huge Halo geek and I love playing the game. Um, but I think from a career perspective, like getting to work on Star Wars The Old Republic for four years was super fun because it goes back to my desire to work on something Star Wars many years ago. Right. So I kind of saw that circle was now complete kind of thing. And uh, I actually was able to tick a goal it's a solid no, game i hear they're remaking it is that true uh i think they're gonna make uh it was knights of the old republic, oh, knights of the old republic is the one they're gonna remake yeah. yeah that that's the one that might get remade which i love that game too it's right. amazing that's one yeah that's what i was thinking of um i, I brought in, in the article once again guys page 21 i believe and in, in multilingual if you're following at, at home you you outline very succinctly here some of the challenges and culturalization for video games. Mm -hmm. And I want to talk, I want to read these for, for our listeners. Mm -hmm. And then I want to ask you about like, what are some of the unique challenges when it comes shifting back to more like localization, right? Mm -hmm. What are some of the unique challenges of video game localization? Because I think that's something that a lot of folks don't understand. They think localization yes. is localization. And there's a lot of LSPs that would love to get their foot in the door with the gaming localization vertical mm -hmm. and just can't because they don't have the experience. But yeah. first, I'll start off by reading these. So challenges of culturalization in video games. One, the client's values and goals and how those dictate their willingness or unwillingness to change their content. The context in which the content is, ge content is generated. So if the content team is primarily all from a specific geography or culture, that can affect the assumptions about what's appropriate. For larger clients, a single decision on a game could affect the business strategy and the other non-game verticals. Microsoft and Sony make many products beyond games, for example. Uh, the market strategy for a locale, how, how you're going to sell into China, for example, differs from Saudi Arabia or Brazil. Uh, the market strategy for the specific products, i.e. different game genres, are perceived very differently across various geographical regions. The changing geopolitical, cultural, social, and legal factors. As we realize, the world is very dynamic, so I'm constantly striving to stay informed of current conditions in various markets and regions to understand how a client's content might be received at the moment of release. And lastly, on top of all of these, there is a persistent fear in many companies of doing something wrong, even unintentionally, and being called out on social media. So many are constantly fighting off a form of creative paralyzation that can haunt their work. Um, really quickly for the, um, uh, the world is not used in the second to last bullet point here, the mm -hmm. ge geopolitical, cultural, social, legal factors. You say you're constantly trying to stay on, on top of these things. What is your, do you have like a morning routine where you just wake up and read from like five international newspapers to say, how do you stay on top of these? Do you have like Google news alerts or? Yes. Absolutely. I, I look at several news sources every single day. Um, I have a whole host of Google News alerts that are tailored that I created um, years ago that basically 
um, you know, give me certain angles on different stories, like boundary dispute stuff versus cultural faux pas and anything that might kind of scrape through the news. Um, so I, I analyze that every single day. Um, that's kind of that is sort of my first routine when I get up and drink my tea in the morning and kind of kind of scan through and kind of say, okay, where what's happening in the world today? Who made a mistake? Um, is is there another conflict that I need to be aware of? I mean, all of that kind of stuff. I mean, beyond that, I it's also my my network of colleagues that I have around the world who. Um, will also let me know if something's going on locally that they feel like I should know about. So that is just a, a whole network of people I've cultivated over the years who are, are dear colleagues of mine who, you know, and I, I help them out as well when they need a perspective from here because um, the U.S. is definitely not a homogeneous nation by any means. Sure. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, um, yeah, so it's basically there's a, there's a whole number of, of ways that I try and stay informed. Yeah, so, so it, you know, it's, it's not just like localization. It's constantly changing, constantly dynamic. And I know language changes, but language changes at a much lower pace than, I would say, international relations, for yeah. example, which can, which can go to hell in a handbasket overnight. Yeah, yeah especially right. in the, today's world. Yeah. So, so speaking of localization, what makes gaming localization unique? And rather, I just got done reading a bunch, so I'd rather mm -hmm. not read this. I'll just ask you the question. Um, gaming localization, first of all, as an industry, the gaming industry, in relation to you know, other forms of entertainment, you know, other forms of media entertainment, I would say, how does it compare in regards to like film, um, television, um, stuff like that? And what makes it what are some of the unique challenges that are present in gaming localization that aren't present in other forms of localization? Well, I think from my perspective, and again, not being a translator, but from having worked alongside many, many translators over the years and, and worked with a lot of different loat teams and boat companies who've often outsourced the cultural culturalization tasks to me um, when they've been working on some games, um, the real challenge, I think, is that is is first of all understanding the medium because games are not necessarily, even though there are linear narratives that take place in games, it's not necessarily a linear um, medium by any means. Not like a film or a television show where it is linear. I mean, it's the whole thing. It is a timed sequence of of language. Whereas with games, um, because you can, there's many, many different paths you can take in a game typically, like, you know, I mentioned, I just finished playing Diablo 4 recently. Well, there's so many different ways that you can go about pursuing the narrative. You can jump onto the main narrative or jump off of it and do tons of side quests or just wander the environment and encounter things. And so having an understanding that this is such a multivariate environment and it's not linear in terms of the the general flow of language and so that's something that i think is really important for people to understand um and, and i honestly i think it's really important for people who are interested in getting into game localization they have to understand the medium which means whether you like it or not you got to play games so yeah. Um, yeah. Because it, it, that's one thing I've noticed in the game industry, and I appreciate about it, is that, and I don't think it's too different from other industries as well, but I know it's particularly true in the game industry, is that you carry a certain legitimacy with you if you actually play games and understand how they work. Because if you don't, because I know colleagues of mine who said, well, I, hey, I've been doing medical translation for 20 years, but I, I'm really curious about working on games. 
but I don't really like games. I just know that it's, you know, a very active field. I'm like, well, first of all, you need to get over that dislike <laughs> right? because, because a lot of game developers can smell that dislike, like sharks smell blood in the water. It's like we, you know, you can tell if a person doesn't really know how it works, but honestly, in order to do the work really well, you have to understand the medium extremely well. And, and, you know, so like if you're going to be working, for example, if you're tasked with doing translation on a role-playing game, you should probably be out there playing several role-playing games just to kind of understand how the mechanics work and how the flow of language works and the way that dialogues are structured uh, between characters and all that kind of thing. Um, so it is different. Is it possible for someone to, so I'll, I'll, I'll back up a little bit and say like, I, I remember this one project comes to mind from a previous life. It wasn't even a project. It was a proposal I was helping the sales team with. And we were trying to get into the gaming vertical uh i worked at a company that didn't really didn't have experience in gaming but it was kind of like this holy grail we wanted to get our foot in the door so we were coming in and bidding on all these projects and this one proposal that we worked on like we even went so far as to put people's like world of warcraft avatars in the proposal like this is julio and mm -hmm. here's his avatar, and here's his character, and here's his stats, and you know all, all of this different stuff. And so rather than just a regular corporate bio, because that was really important to them that we came from that culture. Mm -hmm. And you know, as you and I were talking just before this, like I play games, but you know, I've also got three kids and a job, right? I, I, I don't play games as much as I'd like to, um, mm -hmm. which is probably maybe a good thing for my kids' sake. I, I consider myself a casual gamer, but even I would feel very inadequate, I would say, sitting across the table from a bunch of game, game developers. I don't feel like I'm actually part of that world. And my, my question to you is like, is it even possible to like become part of that world? Like if you're a localization expert who wants to get into gaming localization, you say you need to play games. Can I go start playing around with games now? Or is it something like, you know, exclusive where I had to have grown up playing games and no, 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 right. that, that's There's one no thing. That's no, there's one. Th that's one thing I love about the game industry, and I mean, let's face it. I, I mean, I use myself as an example. If a geographer can figure out how to stick around this industry as long as I have, anybody can. Fair. Trust me, yeah. anybody can find a way. And that's one thing I love about the industry is it's very open. It's like if you have a curiosity about games, or if you actually love games, and you have an interest in working in this industry, people are generally very welcoming and very helpful. And it's one of the aspects. It's actually one of the reasons why. I opted while I was doing my co my consulting work to also take on the task of running the International Game Developers Association and also then uh, uh, after that running the Global Game Jam just because I love these communities of developers. They are very welcoming and supportive. People mentor each other. And I um, mean, it's why um, in my early days um, after I left Microsoft, I created the game localization special interest group in the IGDA. And so it still exists. So if people are curious about getting into game loc, I highly encourage them just, you know, go find the IGDA localization SIG. I believe they have a Facebook group and they're available in other locations, or you can just go to IGDA.org to find them. Um, but that's a great place to start because there are tons of great localization professionals, uh, a lot of veterans who've been working in game loc for many, many years. And it's a great place to go introduce yourself and say, Hey, I'm interested in getting into this. You know, do, does anybody have any uh, tips for me or 
willing to be a mentor. Yeah. So that's for those of you guys that didn't hear, IGDA.org is the International Game Developers Association. They have a website. Go check it out. And yeah, very, very encouraging. So thanks for sharing that. Mm-hmm. That resource with us. Um, shifting back to more, more my world, the language <laughs> services space, the localization space. Um, you know, games aren't the only thing that needs culturalization, right? So I, I want to just call that out because I don't yeah. want people to think like, oh, only games need culturalization. There's there's plenty of services and products out there that could benefit from culturalization services. And I know from, I've worked most of my career, pre-NIMSI anyways, working in LSPs, language service providers. And the thing about working in LSP is you get a lot of crazy requests from your clients. And you're their translation partner, so you're responsible for translating all of their stuff. But they seem to think it's it's cool to throw anything relating to other countries or cultures or peoples over the fence at you. And kind of your job as an LSP is to field those requests and hopefully admit ignorance if you're not an expert so that they can find someone who is. But a lot of times we, we ended up just taking on these projects and, you know, contracting with people like you. You, you mentioned that you contract with LSPs mm-hmm. to deliver stuff like this all of the time. And it was interesting. I caught your comments on the role of language services providers and culturalization. I'll just read it here from from the, the magazine. Uh, to be able to assist with geopolitical strategy, a company needs to maintain internal expertise that is beyond language translation. Developing a localization strategy across markets is not the same as developing a geopolitical strategy for how a company's content will be received or not by various cultures and governments. And that culturalization aspect often dives deep into discussion about a company's values. What do they stand for and how do those values get represented in their content? Are they willing to adhere to their values and give up potential revenue from specific markets? In my experience, those conversations don't often arise when discussing the language localization strategy. So there's this whole other level, all these additional layers to the onion that I think... And I can speak because I'm a localization guy. Um, mm-hmm. I can speak for localization guys. Like all of these different layers that aren't even on our radar. Like mm-hmm. there are questions that we don't even know how to ask. But, and, and like I said, hopefully we would be able to admit our ignorance and bring in someone like you or bring in an expert to talk about, to, to talk about these things. Uh, what caught my attention here is you say, um, are they willing to adhere to their values and give up potential revenue from specific markets? Uh, do you have some examples of like what some examples of a company like mm-hmm. sticking to their guns and not giving up on their values, whatever those may be, to apply an open-ended question? Yeah, yeah, I do. I mean, I, I think Bioware is a great example because Bioware, a lot of their games, um, the narrative, the character design, the relationships that they've dis- they've portrayed in their games for many, many years have been very progressive. I would say more progressive than the rest of the general industry. And so like when I worked on Mass Effect 2 many years ago, um, it was banned in Singapore over a portrayed lesbian relationship that was in the game. And, you know, the now I, I had a debrief with the government of Singapore when I was there to talk them, talk with them about it. And they said, no, 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 it wasn't about that at all. It wasn't about the same sex thing. It was something about our rating system. Um, although then they banned Star Wars sure. Episode Nine for the same reason years yeah. later. So, um, oh, for like, but, OK, never mind. Yeah. Yeah. But um, 
but then uh, you know what what bioware did at the time because they had some a lot of their their gamer community some of them were also complaining about it i don't want to see that you know but the one of the creative directors at the time went on the bioware blog and basically said if you don't want to see it don't play the game they're like we're representing the way the world is That's, and if you don't if you're uncomfortable rock. i like that yeah yeah and they're just like, if you don't like that, then we don't really care if you play our game or not. We 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 prefer people who, you know, are don't have a problem with that. And they didn't quite. I obviously paraphrasing there. Sure. Um, but then just fast forward to recently, like I'm working on Dragon Age Four right now with Bioware, and just uh, back in uh, a couple years ago, China declared that they wanted to not see. Uh, LGBTQ uh, representation in video games, they because they they don't want to see that those kind of characters, and so for a lot of companies I work with, including Bioware, that was like considered a deal breaker. It's like okay, because we were working on something, and I basically had to put on the table. I said, hey, did y'all hear what what just uh, what China just recently mentioned about video game content? And so you know this influences whether or not this game is going to be designed for China. And basically one of the uh, developers I was speaking with basically on a call basically said bleep China, um, which basically meant, no, we don't care about selling our game in China because of this. It's a pretty big so, market. <laughs> it is. It's the world's it, it, largest gaming market. Right? So, so that's not that's not a decision to be taken lightly. It isn't. But and so for them to make that declaration, that is clearly them putting their values of inclusivity and diversity before, you know, the the pursuit of funding. And and let's face it, it's becoming more of a trend recently. I mean, Top Gun Maverick, the film, did the same thing, you know, because the the uh, this little anecdote where, you know, the jacket he wears, which is his father's leather jacket, that flight jacket in the original uh, Top Gun film, it has the Japanese flag and the Taiwan flag on the back of the jacket. But then when the trailer for Top Gun Maverick came out, um, the jacket had been changed so that the Japanese flag and the Taiwan flag were not there anymore. They were replaced by just these weird generic designs, even though it was supposed to be the exact same jacket from the original movie. And so there was a tremendous amount of backlash against that online. And the backlash was kind of growing because the film didn't release right away due to COVID. And so I think it was like, what, a year and a half or so that the film did not release because they said, no, we want to wait until COVID's kind of going away. Um, and in that year and a half, the backlash against that portrayal was so severe that the uh, producers of the film actually went in and changed it back so that you see the Japanese flag and the Taiwan flag on the jacket in the new movie, which meant that the movie was not going to sell in China. They made a conscious decision that if we do this, then that means this film is not releasing in China, which it did not. And yet, despite that, it still managed to make almost $2 billion, which is pretty phenomenal for a movie. So it's interesting how Hollywood now is looking at that one example is saying, well, huh, maybe we don't need to chase the Chinese film market. Maybe we can kind of stick to our values yeah. and still be successful. Yeah, cause that's the big one. Like I follow a lot of like movie like nerdy movie blogs and YouTube channels and stuff. And that, I mean, China's the big one. Like there's a lot of concessions being made, a lot of studio interference with, with entertainment coming in and saying, no, 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 we got to do X, Y, and Z for, for mm -hmm. the Chinese market because it's a huge market. Yeah. Right. And it is. I, I think it kind of raises the question. Maybe I'll, I'll ask you this question. Like, is it possible to please everybody? 
because <laughs> it's kind of your job, right? Yeah. It's kind of your job to please everybody. So you're the best person to ask this question to. I, I would say in the in five or ten years ago, the answer was yes. You You did have the option of trying to please everybody because for the most part, big players like China or other uh, – large markets were kind of ignoring the fact that this other version existed. Um, they were just, they were kind of fine with it. You know, the fact that there would be like the version, what I would call the default version releases in most of the world. And then, then there would be a, a culturalized version, you know, localized and culturalized version released in China or in Saudi Arabia or wherever else. But some markets, especially China right now is pushing back on that because they're basically telling a lot of content creators now that whatever default version you're releasing needs to be our version. Oh, wow. So, and that is a huge shift in their approach. And in, in a lot of people, you know, you're, you're looking at the whole cultural influence over the U S versus China on the yeah. global stage. And it's a valid thing to examine because for all these years, you could argue very easily that the default version of a lot of films, for example, are very heavily U S influenced because a lot of these films came from the U S or let's just say the West in general, they're very heavily Western influence. Um, and they are, um, and so some countries like China are basically tired of what they would kind of view as this Western hegemony being pushed on them. And so now they're like, okay, we're going to turn the table and say the version that you're going to send to everybody is our version. And if you don't do that, then you don't sell in our market. And that's the way it is. And so we're starting to see that kind of battle for mindshare take place quite a bit or using film and in other creative media for that games, film, television. Um, are kind of this battleground for that, frankly, a cultural and geopolitical mindshare battle on, on you know, what is reality. It's one of the reasons why some governments like Russia and China and Saudi Arabia and others have created these internet, uh, you know, firewalls like the Golden Shield in China or the sovereign internet law that was passed in Russia in late 2018, I believe it was. Um, we're now seeing what what happens is that basically you have societies that are basically being walled off from the rest of the world so that influence and control over mindshare is easier. And I know that sounds very Orwellian, but it's it's uh, that's basically the reality of what we're dealing with right now. Uh, there's I mean, a lot that sounds Orwellian these days, <laughs> but I mean, there's just I'm just sitting here like it's so cool, like listening to you spout off all of these things this is. Some of it is like I had an idea about, but a lot of this is like I had no idea. This, this well, I see it thing. every day at work, and that's the thing. It's like I see the the these decisions and and the influence that is out there. It impacts my work on a daily basis, and so I guess I'm just like, you know, I, I sort of in the trenches dealing with yeah. this on on all this content issues and. And, and so I, it's like people will ask me, well, that's just a perception. I'm like, well, no, it's it, it's a reality based on the work that I do every day. And, um, and it, it wouldn't be visible to a lot of people because like my job and the job of like a lot of localization people, for example, is when you don't see the mistakes, you don't see the errors, you don't see all the work that goes into it so that the end user has a very seamless linguistic and cultural experience. And that's our job is to make it easier and, and more or less frictionless for people. And so you don't see all, all the, the conflagration that goes on the back end. Yeah, I mean, we've said that around localization for a long time. Is like, you know, localization is working when you don't even realize it's there. 
exactly right and i can imagine it's the same with with culturalization very true yeah i mean it was fact it's so it, it was hard like when i was at microsoft running my team there because our the greatest success we would have as a team is when you never knew we were really there yep. in the product and then but then when your management wants like kpis and say well show us show us the impact of your influence it's like well the impact is that the game didn't get banned yeah it did it didn't have a pr problem you're, you're still in business and your <laughs> chinese office manager is not in jail exactly which <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> right. That, that, those things happen too. Those are the KPIs. Yes. Hey, I have one last quote that I want to pull up, but before mm -hmm. I do that, I want to I want you to tell us about set jetters, just because I think it's really yeah. cool, and I'm going to be going on a vacation later on this month, and yeah. I want to use it. So yeah, set jitters came about in the last three years or so. This is a pure passion project. So one of my biggest hobbies, because I travel about 80% of the year to speak at a lot of events, but when I have any free time, I love visiting filming locations. Like I've been to a lot of Star Wars locations and Indiana Jones and a bunch of other series that I like. And it's just really fun for me because I, I love that emotional connection that happens when you're standing in the place for a film that means a lot to you. Like I was in Wadi Rum in Jordan back in November and uh, Lawrence of Arabia is one of my favorite films. And so I stood in the very locations where they filmed Lawrence of Arabia, you know, over 60 years ago. And it was just cool. To me, it's kind of magical. It's really fun. So I partnered with four other people and we co-founded this company called Set Jetters, which is an app that's been available on iOS and Android now for about two years. And basically it helped you find filming locations around the world. And um, and I never thought that this hobby would become like a business, but it is now. So I like it. Yeah, I'm, I'm heading down to uh, Utah, like Arches, yeah. Bryce Canyon, oh, yeah. Zion. And I just... I grew up watching Western movies. Right? Oh, yeah. So course. that's why. Monument Valley. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So that's why I want to check this out. So cool. thanks for telling us about that. One last quote to wrap, wrap us up here. Let me pull her up. Um, all right. Culturalization is more critical now than ever. In the multilingual profile, uh, you answered. My answer is bias, but I believe strongly that given today's dynamic information landscape and the ongoing fragmentation of social media and elsewhere, culturalization is more critical than ever. We absolutely need the language localization experts to continue doing their work to bridge the legibility gaps, but a greater focus on culturalization, how ideas and worldviews can better work together and find compatibilities in the midst of so much distrust, disinformation, and dissonance is vital. For all the good that social media has brought in global connectivity, it's also brought upon us the ability to optimize information bubbles in which we limit our access to a wide range of viewpoints. And at its worst, when often wielded by governments, it intentionally shapes and distorts the perspective of the citizenry so that they are living in a different reality than the rest of the world. To that end, I think it's criti critical for all of us working in the localization and culturalization space to do what we can to rebuild those cross-cultural connections and open dialogues. And I think we, we touched upon a lot of these points throughout the, the conversation today, but I would just ask you as a final question, what is this going to be looking like, not just today, but five years from now, 10 years from now? We've got crazy stuff happening with AI, all this stuff. And, you know, I'm not going to ask you, are you going to be out of a job? And because, <laughs> come on, no. Um, it's a very human, human industry niche vertical that, that yeah. you're working in. But what, what's this going to look like in the future? 
it i think we're we're at a real crossroads um in a lot of ways because it's like we've got these amazing tools like ai and and i do think it's an amazing tool it has a lot of uh, advantages and optimization it can do for us i mean like in the game industry we've been using different ai tools for many many years but most of those are procedural ai you know which basically it's like we we actually have games like no man's sky which is built on an on a procedural ai model in which you can fly around the universe and as you're flying towards a new planet it is creating the planet on the fly as you approach it including all the geography the flora and fauna and everything is being generated as you're approaching it and landing on it and that's pretty phenomenal um, so it can be a great tool, but at the same time, the, what we're seeing with generative AI, which is kind of what a lot of the controversy is about right now, um, that has such a huge potential for either, for basically enhancing the ability for disinformation and for misrepresentation. And I think that's something that we need to get a handle on very quickly. Um, but it's, it's, I don't know how we're going to get a handle on it because it, uh, to me, it, in a way, the genie is almost out of the bottle already. Yeah. I mean, I'm looking at the use of AI in my own work, not necessarily as a way to replace me because I don't think it can because I honestly don't think AI can understand the very nuanced uh, contextual issues that we often have to deal with in this work. But I do think it's like a pattern recognition tool. Yeah. For example, I could have like an AI generated bot that goes into a game's virtual world. It helps me find objects that might be potentially problematic, like symbols and other kinds of things in the environment that makes it uh, rather than me having to go through that game world, it can just automatically just kind of go through and scan everything like my own little imperial probe droid floating yeah. around and uh, find everything. So um, so I think there's there's ways to look at it as an advantage, but the problem right now is that, as I see on a larger global stage, is that we are unfortunately kind of where the world was 100 years ago. We're seeing this rise in populism, sort of a an appeal of fascism in some circles, um, but we also have now, unlike 100 years ago, we have the tools to to optimize the ability to do those things in a really horrible way in terms of disinformation and modifying reality and things like that. And so I think we have a huge challenge in front of us right now because unfortunately we know what happened um, 100 years ago right after this time period where the rise of populism and fascism, we ended up in another world war that didn't go very well um, in terms of the global impact. And then unfortunately today, we the way we make war is even worse. So. Um, obviously, we don't want to see that happen, but um, you know we're living in a situation where we see this this lack of of clarity on what the truth is and what the world is um, to a lot of people. It, it's uh, I think it's we have a, some challenges ahead. You know, I want I'm I'm always optimistic, but at the same time, it's like we do have a challenging next five to ten years ahead. Well. Anyone who can start their day by reading like five different newspapers and still be somewhat optimistic, I think, is stronger willed than me. I, I swore off, I hate to say, I hate to admit this, I swore off reading the news about a year ago because it was not good for my mental health. Yeah, I believe that. Yeah, I mean, it's just, I, I, and I, I completely understand that. I, I kind of, and I guess I get sort of clinical about it because I'm looking yeah. at it, you know, in the same way a doctor looks at open bodies all the time and they just don't flinch anymore and i guess i kind of look at it the same way where it's like i need to do this as part of my job that, to do my job effectively separate it put yeah. up the, the firewall in your brain kind of
Well, Kate, thank you so much for joining us. Like I said, I'm surprised it's, it's been this long, 89 <laughs> episodes for me to get you on the show. I, I'm, I'm honored to have you. I'm a big fan. Well, thank you. I'm, I'm so glad to be here. And thanks again for asking. All right. I'll wrap us up here. Ladies, gentlemen, chat, we are out of time for today. If you enjoyed this episode of Nimsy Live, then you can join us next time, like in two weeks when we have a whole bunch of stuff on the calendar. Go over to Nimsy's uh, LinkedIn page, hit the events tab, and you'll see all of the cool stuff that we have scheduled. I will be out of office for the next nine, 10 days or so. So you won't be seeing me for a little while. Uh, once again, make sure go follow Kate Edwards on LinkedIn. It's a good follow. You won't regret it. Stay up to date on all of the cool stuff that she's doing over there. I appreciate our guest today, Kate Edwards. I appreciate my colleagues here at Nimsy Insights doing all of the hard work so I can have these fun conversations. I appreciate everyone in our industry who fills out Nimsy surveys and schedules briefings with us so that we can include you in our published industry research. And finally, I appreciate you, the audience, who are joining us live today. I appreciate the dialogue and chat, everyone who left comments, questions, and especially criticisms. And I look forward to next time. Cheers. Oh,